It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. I can't believe next week, I guess it's not really next week, it's the following week is Christmas. Well, it's 14, 20, yeah, no, nine it's, days. It's, so we're inside of two weeks, though. So it's, it's inside two weeks. So this is the last show before Christmas. And normally, this is Santa's workshop. <laughs> we typically order a lot of stuff. It comes in, we wrap, we have a wrapping station. I don't know what's happened this year. I'm going to blame it on Washington and the fiscal cliff that we've had to create these Frankenstein spreadsheets for every one of our clients to figure out who falls where. So we haven't been able to enjoy the holiday season as much as we normally do. I don't want to make you feel guilty, but I actually have wrapping paper in the back of my car because I did bring some in. So I am doing a little bit of wrapping today. Well, if you can fit it in with the Frankenstein (laughs) spreadsheet and everything else that we've got going on, more power to you. By the way, this is the Money Guy Show, money-guy.com. If you want to go check out the, the show notes, you can also sign up to get the free Blast email that goes out every time we come up with new content for twenty nine, a little over $29. We also have a premium membership that lets you get into our archives all the way back to 2006 when we started this show. I um, want to talk to you. First, Merry Christmas. You know, I, I feel kind of weird that I'm not going to be able to, to talk to you guys until after Christmas comes and goes. And this time of the season, even though I haven't had a chance to, to really do the ha- hot cider that we typically have right. done in the past. Um, we have had the Christmas music with one of my Black Friday purchases on the wireless speaker. We've had the Christmas music playing. The Michael Buble holiday channel on Pandora is exceptional, if you want to go check that I'd out. I'd say it's one of my favorites. Um, definitely get a lot out of that. But ABC Family, that cable channel, satellite channel, whatever you want to say they are, the month of December, they do 25 days of Christmas programming. And this is the time of year that, for some reason, Tori Spelling and her sappy movies that probably any other 11 months out of the year I would have zero desire of watching, in the month of December, they seem okay. So we, we watched, we sat down as a family, for some reason, and taped the musical Mistletones. It was completely um, cheesy. I mean, the, the facial expressions and dialogue were, were horrible, but somehow I still left the movie... Um, that we watched at the house feeling better. So that, that's one of the things that I've kind of had going on this month. You know, as I'm giving, looking at other things that I have going on in the month of December, shopping. My wife, God bless her, has asked for the only thing in America that is price controlled. That is a Tory Burch purse. I went on Price Grabber. That's why if you go to pricegrabber.com, it's one of my first tools. I go out and try to figure out the best price um, to, to figure out how I'm going to, you know, approach the purchase to squeeze that extra 5 to 10% off that I typically can find with, with my shopping ninja skills. And it if everything is not price-controlled on Tory Burch um, items, I did go home and complain to her that she was not getting this Tory Burch purse because of the price control. And she said, oh, after Black Friday, Tory Burch had everything off, a third off on Cyber Monday. Oh, well, that like, helps now. I was like, thanks for telling me after Cyber Monday. So, um the only I have found one thing is that, you know, and I've talked about it before is I'm going to probably use Ebates because if you go look at Saks, um, Nordstrom, Macy's, some of these stores, they all some of them are paying up to six percent back in rebates. So that that's a little bit of a I don't know a 
a door prize, I guess, for, for buying something right. that I think is ridiculously priced in the first place. The other thing I've done for Christmas that you can learn off of is because I, I gave a, a report back when the Kindle Fires first came out. <laughs> if you're looking at comparing the iPad to the Kindle Fires, I like the iPads because they controlled content. If you were going to give this to a child, um, because you, you've got to be careful out there with, with the Internet and everything else these days to make sure your kids are not getting exposed to something prematurely. And um, the iPads seem to be doing a much better job with that. Well, the new redesign of the Kindle Fires, there is a new app that comes with the Kindle Fires called Kindle Free Time. It's an app that's on all the new Kindle Fires. And I am really impressed with this. I'm giving my – she doesn't listen to the show, so it's okay if I announce this today. I'm giving her a Kindle Fire for Christmas. And I was really worried about controlling that content. Well, Kindle Free Time is, is, has really relieved my thoughts for that. And one of the other things that's really cool about this, this application is that it also restricts usage. I have one of these young daughters that is just all into the tech gadgets. She probably t- is because she takes after me, very mathematically minded. So she loves playing video games and other things. We're going to be able to restrict to where the reading on the Kindle is going to be unlimited because we want to encourage her to read as much as she'd like to. But the applications and the videos on the Kindle Fire will be restricted to less than 30 minutes a day. And Now, you can make it unlimited. You can do it in 15-minute increments. We're going to restrict that because I think it's a very cool thing for a parent to be able to control the access. Um, I want to kind of, as we before we get into the heavy lifting of the show today, I also want to talk about charities. This is the time of year that you know we all think about how thankful how thankful we are coming out of Thanksgiving. Think about the less fortunate with um, you know the Christmas coming up, and I tell everybody, especially with all the talks going on in Washington with the fiscal cliff, if you're a high income person and high income seems to be a lower and lower number these days, with 200 if you're single and 250 if you're a married couple, you really might want to think about cleaning out your closet this year because there's there's a lot of speculation that charity, charitable contributions as well as other deductions won't be the same next year. So if you've put off, you know, giving out some of those shoes, clothes, and other things that are not getting much use in your closet, this is the time to definitely go check that out. If you're more organized and you want to kind of put together a charitable giving plan, because I and I think I've mentioned this in other shows where I had an aunt tell me that her and her accountant have come up with a plan where they're going to be paying, making their charitable contributions only every other year, then you might want to go look at the the Fidelity Charitable Gift Fund. That's at fidelitycharitable.org. Now, I've had somebody ask, Brian, why do you always talk about Fidelity's Charitable Fund instead of Vanguard and some of the others that are out there? Truthfully, it's convenience of who I know. Um, Fidelity's been the, Fidelity Institutional's been one of the, the custodians we've used for the last 10 years, I am familiar with Schwab as well, but Fidelity's been our primary, and I'm just familiar with their platform. So I'm sure there's others that are out there. Fidelity, $5,000 minimum to open the account. You can actually add additional amounts later at a smaller level, but 5000 to open the account. Your grants to the charities, um, minimum of $50, so that's not too big whatsoever. And what I like is that while your money's sitting out there trying to figure out, you can choose how you want that money allocated. You can be aggressive or you can be conservative. So go check that out. And um, you know, one of the last closing things on the, the Fidelity Charitable Gift Fund, I'm sure it's the same way with the others, you can give appreciated mutual funds. That is a huge planning opportunity because a lot of charities are set up to take your appreciated stock. But if you're if you're an investor like a lot of our clients are, that they have mutual funds, not really individual stocks anymore. 
these charitable gift funds really open up that opportunity. Now, getting into the meat of the show. I did that bow, and we blew through eight minutes. So Holy We're going to have to crank through the rest of this um, unneeded information that is always cool to know. That's kind of the next segment. And what I say is unneeded information that's always great to know. This is that stuff as we enter the cocktail, you know, the holiday parties, the Christmas parties for your office. It's always cool to have things that you can throw out there as an, as, uh, to, to, you know, break the ice with somebody. You know, you, you, instead of talking about the weather, you can ask, do you know what the perfect income is to be happy? It's a good question. I mean, who doesn't want to talk about what's the perfect income to be happy? I'm sitting here in my mind kind of trying to figure out what, what I think that number would be. Well, there was an article on Yahoo Finance that I printed out on Friday, November 30th. Um, done, it looks like in conjunction with NBC and Robert Frank from CNBC. I actually, I saw the peacock. I just said NBC, but it's CNBC. And it talks about, it kind of reprises that there was a, a research report that came out last year that said, um, there's a study that said, put the optimal income for happiness at around $75,000. And that's what they had said last year. And I always was like, $75,000, that's a decent income. But I, I can't imagine that that is the pinnacle of feeling like, you and know. All your worries are kind of Your worries are taken care of. I mean, so that might be the next drop in the tax rates. Maybe we'll go from 250 to 200, maybe down to 75 because of the, the, the study here. But we'll see. But there's a new study that came out called... It, this is from Scan, Scandia International Wealth Sentiment Monitor. Hmm. So this is obviously an international company outside the United States. It found that the global average happiness income is actually around $161,000 for the 13 countries that are surveyed. Now, it does need to be noted, the United States was not included in this survey. So this is outside the United States, but I still think, you know, now that we're in this global world, you can probably take this data and, 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 and get some information from it. It said, um, and, and there was a lot of variation because it, it went into Dubai, obviously a lot of wealth in Dubai. To feel wealthy there, you need to have income. And I, I should say, to feel happy with your income, you need to have $276,000. Singapore came in second place with $227,000. I guess if we were rounding up, because it's $227,553, we'll say $228,000. With Hong Kong in third place with $198,000. The regions that you can actually make less money and feel happy was in Europe. Germans only need $85,781, so essentially $86,000 to be happy, play, placing them clearly lowest on, on the list. The French needed $114,000, and then the British needed $133,000. But how much do you need to, to be happy and, and wealthy? Hmm... I'm going to have to think about that one. You're not willing to give it. <laughs> I dropped that on the, the, on the spot with him. Um, I did think they went a little deeper because it, it wasn't the question they with the survey. They said, what do you, not to the wealth you need, because remember, that's income. Income and wealth are completely different things. And that's why I get mad at Washington because there are two separate functions. You know, just because you have good income does not mean you're wealthy. We have a lot of people, attorneys and others that come to us making great incomes. And you ask them, say, hey, let me see what you've been saving. You're 50 years old. You're going to retire in the next 12 to 15 years. You make, you know, $450,000 a year. How much do you have in retirement savings? Wah, wah, wah. Yeah, I need that. I need to have a button that I can push that. And when they show you their 401k is $114,000, you go, ow, we're going to have to have an education here. Um, as I tell you about some great self, 
you know, do-it-yourself tools that you can do. Because that's, that's the thing is there's a huge difference between income and wealth. So the survey asked, how much do you need, not to feel happy, but just to feel wealthy? What asset level, if you focus on the net worth side of things, how much money do you need to feel wealthy? And I thought this was interesting. It said that the global average to feel wealthy, not happy, but just wealthy, is $1.8 million. You know, I, th- I thought that it was going to come back at, at $1 million. I was kind of surprised to see it come back at one point. Well, it is funny. Down here it says the survey among Americans, a lot of research out there among Americans, $1 million is the magic number. Okay. Yeah. Somehow we've been trained to think $1 million is wealthy. Because it makes America. you a millionaire, right? I mean, it, exactly. Um, that's, hence, hence the songs and everything else that are out there. Um, Singapore's took the lead on the wealth side of things. They, to feel wealthy in Singapore, you have to have $2.91 million dollars. Dubai ranks second with two and a half million dollars, um, with Hong Kong at two point four six million. So I thought that was kind of an interesting. Like I said, this is um, unneeded information that is cool to know. Cool to know. So these are good icebreakers. Kind of to close out the show today, because you know, kind of keeping on the same theme of holiday parties. You go to these holiday parties or family reunions when you're around the, you know, your family members. You get a, you get more than five people in a room. There's always going to be somebody in the room that's going to tell you how smart they are with their investments and their financial prowess. Now, I, I, you know, let me go ahead and, and tell you, we typically, because we're such nerds, people come up to us and ask. We, I, I do not walk around. We do not brag about how much money we're making because I know better. Right. But there are people who just have not come to that conclusion that love going around telling you about their hot stock tips or the, or the great things that are making them money. And what's funny is us being in the industry, Bo, I find that I don't have to go brag about it because these people will find me at the party. It's amazing and how that to works. To come tell me how much money they're making, to I guess to try to make me feel bad at my day job. Uh, I don't know why they're doing it, but th- th- this article was put in the New York Times in their blog, The Bucks Blog, and it was written by Carl Richards. Now, Carl Richards is a financial planner in Park City, Utah. Now, I, I want to go ahead and put one disclaimer. Because his example of the guy that he kind of picks on for being the Mr. I make great money and I'm smarter than you is somebody we're actually a fan of. And I, and I want to make sure, and I know we have people in the money guy family that also work for this financial guru. And I don't want anybody out there to think that I'm trying to pick on this guy because I'm not. And if, if you know we're up in Nashville a good bit, and if he ever wanted to meet and have lunch, I would love to break bread. And I do not want him going, hey, you did that podcast that picked on me. That's not the case. Dave, if you're listening, we're fans. But Carl had some great observations, and, I, and we have picked on Dave to a degree. If I guess I was nitpicking him because he's incredible at motivating people. This is Dave Ramsey I'm talking about, at motivating people to get out of debt, which all in all is great, especially in these crazy times we're in where debt and leverage was really a bad thing. And Dave has been leading the charge on helping America, especially the individuals, get out of debt. So that's a good thing. But I've often said... Dave does stray a little bit when he talks about investments. And that's what this article talks about. But this is not specifically talking about Dave. It's just using him as an example. But this is a warning, and this is an inoculation to help you avoid the people at the cocktail party or just in life who are bragging about how smart they are. It it goes on. It says, based upon the stories, he tells you every time you run into him, Making money in the stock market is easy. Now, when it's talking about him, it's not talking about David. It's just talking, talking about, about that guy. That guy. That guy that you run into. So there's no specifics when I'm reading you these generalities. It says picking the best mutual funds, that's easy. Beating the S&P 500, that's easy. 
Then, in his oh-so-casual way, he says, If I can do it, anyone can do it. (laughs) It's easy. These run-ins used to leave me with a sickening feeling in my stomach. I wondered what I was doing wrong. How come that guy makes it sound so easy? How come his experience seems so different from mine? I must be missing something, right? Now, remember, the guy who wrote this for the New York Times blog is also a financial planner um, over there in Utah. So, so I, I kind of know what he's talking about because people do find me at parties and try to tell me how smart they are with their money. And he goes, here's the perfect example of, quote, I'm doing the rabbit ears in the air, that, that guy in action. And here's where it picks on poor Dave. It says, Dave Ramsey recently answered a question about investing with this. So he's talking about his radio call-in show, and it says, this is Dave's quote. I recommend mutual funds because they always beat the S&P. All right, so I always, I, I'm already getting heartburn because what there's one word in there that in this industry you just don't use. You don't make guarantees. You don't say always. You don't speak in absolutes. Um, for example, take a mutual fund with a 25-year track record. Over the course of those 25 years, if you can see that the mutual fund almost always beats the S&P 500, or he doesn't say, he just says S&P, then that mutual fund contains stocks that are winning more than the overall market is winning. And at the end of his answer, it's on the audio but not reflected in the transcript, Mr. Ramsey concludes with this. But I quote, but I've honestly done better than 12%, and now I'm no rocket scientist. So there's that air of humility as he tells you he's making 12% a year. And, you know, and, and that's the thing, I guess, what, and I haven't picked on Dave in, in years because, I, like I said, I respect him tremendously. We're up in Nashville enough. I'm still kind of secretly hoping that, that, that at some point we get to meet the, Mr. Dave and his financial empire. But the thing is, is I remember, and I, I guarantee Dave doesn't talk about this anymore because 2008 rocked all of our worlds and changed our strategies. But Dave, instead of using a withdrawal rate of 4 or 5%, which industry-wide is considered acceptable, at one point was using 8% is what he said. And then when he was talking about diversification, he talked about you want to have growth funds, you want to have aggressive growth funds, and then a growth in income. Basically 25, 25, 25. It was 25, 25, 25, 25. And I think it was, it was like I said, aggressive growth, growth, growth in income. And I can't remember, maybe it was international, right. was that fourth category. And those things always bother me a little bit because it's a little more complicated than that. Um, Going on what what Carl was carrying on, what he said, I think think most of us hear 12% and our jaws drop. Combined with his certainty, always beat the S&P 500, it's hard to square what he says with what the rest of us have experienced. We must be doing something wrong, right? Um, Now, it looks like the author contacted Mr. Ramsey's public relations representative, but they did not get a response back. It goes on and it says, in an effort to help you with that sick feeling in your stomach, here are a few of the facts that he figured. So he's put together kind of a list of, of their facts. I'm going to go through a few of these. Um, number one, beating an index isn't a financial goal. And that's true. I we like talk that. about that. I will tell you, we have, um, when we meet with prospects, we, have, we don't use it every time, but sometimes we pull out the, like the eight things or 10 things that your financial planner won't tell you. Um, it was done many, many years ago. By Liz Weston. She was actually a guest on the show. Yeah, Liz Weston, who's been a friend of the show, Money Guy show, um, is an article, I think, all the way from back in 2004. Yeah, it's been a I number mean, of years a, now. It's an old article, but it's, it's, it's the things that your financial planner won't tell you. One of the things that she has on her list is we don't try to beat the market. Um, and a lot of people are surprised by that, and that's why we even ask in the preliminary stage, we'll say, what's a reasonable rate of return? And when somebody tells me they want to beat the market, 
I know there's some client education required because our thoughts, and I, I know we've expressed this to you in the past, if you're talking about large companies in the United States, that's what the S&P 500 are, we don't try to beat it. A lot of times we will buy an index fund or you know that, that because the cost is so low and that market is so efficient. Because remember, we have 500 companies, thousands upon thousands of people doing this for a living with the internet and how fast data moves throughout the world these days. How can you think logically that somebody is smart enough to be more efficient than those thousands upon thousands of people looking at 500 individual stocks. It just doesn't jive with me. So you have to look at what else plays into that. Well, fees do. So if you can buy an index fund that is a tenth of a percent per year versus a managed fund that's 1.5% internal expenses per year, it's 15 times cheaper, there's 1.4% performance that you could potentially put in your back pocket. So that, that, that's how we kind of square the logic. Now, we'll tell you there's exceptions for our clients who are listening because um, we have picked up a, quite a number of podcast listeners as clients. We do sometimes buy managers in the large cap category because maybe we're going after dividends. Right. Um, in, in this type of economy where yields are so low, where they're penalizing our savers, we might put a lot of our equities into something that has a dividend lean to it so that we can get a higher yield for our clients' portfolio, so they're making more income. But um, financial goals are more like saving for your kid's college, building money for retirement. Those are things that will have variables of what your age is, what your risk tolerance are, and you work towards those goals. Yes, investment performance is important, and you don't want to have a, a, an advisor who's buying you a bunch of dogs, getting rich at your expense, but you don't want to focus on the wrong thing. Bo, any thoughts on that? No, I completely agree. I think I think I think he said it perfect when he said beating the index is not the goal. The goal is the goal. Yeah, and that's important. Number two, rear view investing leads to accidents. Um, you know, I've been saying this a different way for years. I say don't chase the hot dot, um, and what I mean by that is we are due. It so happens this is the month of December, so we will be getting in the next few weeks to the next month. Probably all the magazines, Smart Money, Kiplinger's, and others will be coming out with the best performing funds of 2012. And everybody's going to run out. They even do special magazines where they come out, and this is the issue with the best of the best. And people will run out and go, ooh, i got to get that one so I can go, you know, my funds have been doing so poorly. I'll go buy those top performing funds from last year. Well, when you rear view drive your investments, that's why I like it said it leads to accidents, because it's true. If you were trying to drive your car through your rear view mirror, probably not going to be so successful. Because a lot of times, you the things that have made those funds so successful have probably come and gone. Right. Um, you, you know, it's, it's the whole adage, think about dot-com. You know, internet stocks were in vogue back in the late 90s. You would have felt silly if you went and bought that top-performing fund of 1999 in the first part of 2000 and then lost over half of your holdings. And that's very possible. Mm -hmm. Same thing right now with gold and precious metals. Right. I mean, you want to get in on these things at the beginning of the party. You don't want to be the one that's left holding the bag after everybody else has already gone home and you're the one that is turning off the lights and having to eat it because you did the opposite of what you're supposed to. Remember, the goal of investing is to buy low sell high. If you get into something that's at the peak and pinnacle of what it's doing, you're buying high and probably setting yourself up for selling low. It's just be very careful about driving through a rear view mirror um, and, and chasing that hot dot. Number three, 
This is one we talk about all the time too. Reversion to the mean. And I'm going to read exactly what was written here by, by, by Carl. It says, um, I know this probably never happens to you, but I found that just about the time I think I've identified the best investment and decided to buy it, it turns out into the not-so-great investment. And that's kind of tying into what we were just talking about. It turns out that there's data to support this pattern. If you look at all mutual funds that have been around for 25 years, and that's rarer than you think, 62% outperformed the S&P 500 over the last 15 years. Now, when I saw that, I was like, wow, 62%. That is, that's, that's more than half. Right. That doesn't tell the full story because, we're, and it talks about this in the next paragraph. It says, keep in mind that presumably the only funds still around after 25 years are the ones that have done well. So the 62% figure overstates the performance of all funds over time. We call this the survivorship bias. And you have to be very, very aware of this because there are a lot of funds that come and go. I mean, you, you could go pull those Kiplinger's list from the 90s, and I guarantee you a lot of those funds are no longer around. Um, I mean, look at I mean, look at what's happened to Janus. Right. Know, Janus was gobbled up and acquired. They took the good funds. The other bad funds are gone. I mean, there's a lot of funds that, that have been big names that have kind of been absorbed by more successful funds. And what happens, they do that from a marketing standpoint because you have a, a poor-performing fund. I've seen Putnam. Putnam, when they got into all their trouble back in the early 2000s, they had some really good funds. They merged some of those poor-performing funds into the good funds that they had good track records with. So then it's a marketing thing. Right. You, can, you can now advertise off the old performance of that fund. So there's definitely a bias towards the survivorship of the funds. Anything that's been around 25 years, it's got to be just an awesome performing fund in the long term. You just don't see that many of them. Um, it says, meanwhile, when you look at the last 10 years, and this probably explains the concept even more, that number plummets to 37%. Now remember, that's all funds. So this does not, this doesn't mean just stocks. This could be, you know, emerging markets. This could be precious metals. This could be gold. It, there's all kinds of things that go, go into that calculation. If you did take out and you just wanted to look at large cap holdings, so you're doing an apples-to-apples analysis, that 15-year number drops from the 62% down to 47%, so we're less than half. Wow. And then if you look at just the last 10 years, so you get past some of that survivorship bias, number drops down to 32%. And that's what we've been telling. If you've been a Money Guy listener, We've been telling you for years, S&P 500 outperforms two-thirds of their peers. Mm -hmm. Two-thirds of three-quarters, depending upon which data point, whether you're looking at five-year, ten years. But two-thirds of three-quarters of the funds in the large-cap sector will be outperformed by the S&P 500 if you stay the course with it. Um, it says the law of averages tells us there's an increasing likelihood that if a fund has done well in the past, it's less likely to do well in the future. At some point, it's going to revert back to the mean. So about the time you think you've identified the next hot manager, it's about time for that manager to be the not-so-hot manager. Um, and, and I see that time and time mm -hmm. again. Um, number four, if it's too good to be true, it often is. Um, beating the 12% per year is incredible. People who can achieve those returns in a year and year out should be running their own hedge fund. And that's true. I mean, mm -hmm. you think about, remember, the whole, this isn't even mentioned in the article, but Bernie Madoff, right. old Uncle Bernie. That's exactly what I was thinking. You know, if you, he didn't even say twelve percent. I think he was pretty much saying that he could guarantee, you know, eight percent, nine percent, with zero volatility, and that was even occurring in you know in, in years like two thousand seven, two thousand eight, 
where we had a mass volatility in the markets, even in very conservative asset classes. So when things like that, I just can't help. When somebody promises you something too good to be true, be very skeptical about it. Um, it goes on and says, for perspective, consider that among large cap stock mutual funds with a 25-year record, not one had annualized return greater than 12% over the past 10 or 15 years. So that's telling you out of the whole mutual fund in, you know, universe of funds, if you just look at the last 10 years or 15 years, there's not one out there that had annualized performance over 12%. So um, that, that's, that's a pretty big thing that, to, to knock down the, those statements that were made. When looking at all mutual funds with a 25-year history, there's only a few that have beaten 12% annualized over the last 10 years. And most of those funds invest primarily in precious metals. So, Bo, did I say that right? Yeah, I was talking when I said that previous statement about none. It was all large, large cap. caps. Yeah. So, making sure we're doing an apples to apples. So, there are funds that have exceeded the twelve percent, but they're they're precious metals. That in you know, and if you're one of those people that jumped on precious metals way God, back then, yeah, good for you. Fun. Now, hopefully, you're not one of those people that's thinking about, hey, this is the perfect time to go put my entire holdings. In this, be careful. Go back to what I talked about in the previous point with chasing the hot dot. Um, so it says, while some people may claim to have no problem hitting 12%, I have yet to see any academic study or hear any planning professional suggest that 12% is a realistic number for building a plan. Um, and here's a, here's a good case study of why you need to be careful, especially when you're planning for the future. And this kind of gets back to when I used to hear the mention of an 8% withdrawal rate. As My biggest thing is I don't want people to make assumptions they can get them in trouble. Right. I always, when you know, Bo, you know my thing now, is I don't like to cut corners. Plan for the worst. Be conservative with your thought process, on, especially when it comes to finances. That's why you want to be out of debt when you go to retirement age, is because you want to just make sure that even in the worst-case situation, you're going to be in good shape. So if we took a young person who's 25 years old, this is the case study that's in here, it says, and we want them to have $2 million by the time they retire at age 65. So we're giving them 40 years to save. The difference between these two individuals is one's going to make 12% on their money. The other's going to make 7% in, the, in, their, in their setting up of their savings goals. If you use 7% as your, your success goal, you're going to need to save $834 a month to reach $2 million. If you're the person that says, you know what, I could get 12%. I'm going to plan for it you would only need to save $217 a month to reach $2 million. It's a big difference. So think about that. I mean, what if you if you set your goals, oh, I only need to save $200 a month to reach that $2 million, and you're going you're to make decisions, life choices. You might go buy a newer car more often. You might buy a bigger house than you would if you were having to save $800 a month for retirement. And then you're going to reach age 65, and if things have worked out, you can high-five yourself. But what if they haven't? What if we hit another 2008? And I'm, God, let's hope not. But what if you do? You got to move in the kid's basement? Eesh. I mean, you Starting really potatoes. get yourself in a situation. And that's why it's better if you start saving, say you plan for the $800, and then what if you did get an annualized rate of return, not at 7%, but 11%. You get to take an extra trip. Hey, go to Australia. Take the whole family to Australia at that point. You can be as generous you can do you have the the sky's the limit on your opportunities, and you don't have to have that uncomfortable conversation with the kids that you're moving in their basement, or you don't have to have that uncomfortable conversation with your spouse that you know what we're having potatoes again. Go get another jar of peanut butter. 
I mean, those are the type of things that you can save yourself if you understand how important it is to make sure you have reasonable assumptions in your plan. So I guess to close out today's show, remember this is what's important, and this is what they talk about in the article. Especially if you're young, I guess this is timeless. Save as much as you can. I mean, that's really a big part. Knowing not to chase after past performance and avoiding the pain of buying high and selling low, meaning don't let your emotions take control. That's really what that, when I see that statement, buying high and selling low, don't let your emotions run you out of the market at an inappropriate time. And then counting on a high number like 12% takes your eyes off those things that matter and over which have some, that you have some control. So I would kind of just say, guys, use this time. I've said it before, and I'm starting to sound like a broken record. We're about to close out the year. We've probably got one more show before we finish the year here. And, you know, I'm already getting excited about doing my net worth statement, Mm -hmm. trying to tie down getting these last Christmas gifts. Don't let these people sidetrack you. I mean, there's always going to be somebody that tells you how smart they are, how much easier they have it, how much better they they have it than you. Don't let the jealousy, don't let the green with envy hit you. Just put together a plan. Stick to the plan. And you'll be surprised at how happy you'll be. Um, you know, I've been telling clients, and I'll tell you too, just for your own sanity, because I know this fiscal cliff stuff has scared a lot of people, especially I got an email from um, a listener who said, why don't you talk about the alternative minimum tax problem that they refused to fix in Washington too? That's a huge problem. It stresses me out tremendously because I've done some tax projections, and you guys need to be aware of it too. I'm still crossing my fingers that it'll get fixed, but I try not to scare you guys on things that I think truly will be fixed and that's one of them I'm hoping that they will band-aid before year end. But in the same tune, I don't try to scare you guys. Be careful watching the, 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 the news at night. You know, the business model changed probably in the last 20 years for nightly news is that instead of going with what, you know, if you have an 80% chance of something happening, instead of putting the person who, who represents the 80% likelihood um, camp, they will have somebody who represents the 80% and then somebody who represents the 20% camp and let them go at it dogfight style and you know they treat them like they're equals and and that's the stuff that just breeds fear causes people to overreact and make really hard decisions i mean we get a number of calls from listeners who worry about politics too much Mm -hmm. they worry about the nightly news too much because somebody on tv told them this is going to happen i can even remember you know jim kramer back when we were in 2008 was telling people to get out of the market after it had already taken its its bath I mean, these are the things I need you to inoculate yourself from. It's the same as no different than the guy you go to the Christmas party who tells you how much money he's made in individual stocks. So be careful. You know, try to figure out what's good sources of information for you. And then enjoy your family. Enjoy your friends. I mean, this is the time of year where you kind of look back and go, whew, there's been some tough things that have happened, but we made it. And I have my health, I have my family, and I have my friends. And I'm so thankful for all that I have. I mean, it truly is that simple. And that's what I think, you know, I talk about how much money you have to have to be happy. As hokey as it sounds, if you got your health and you got your family, that even outweighs sometimes the money issues. Um, So thanks for listening and helping out with the money guy. Bo, any closing comments you have before Christmas? No, I hope uh, hope all you guys are winding up on your uh, on your Christmas at your cocktail party. When your friends ask you, "Hey, what's the what's the coolest thing that you found in 2012?" Tell them it was the Money Guy show and point them our way. <laughs> oh man, wouldn't that be cool? If, if that's all it takes, man, you guys are low maintenance. We definitely want you to come hang out with us if, if that's all it takes. So, but thank you so much, guys. We're wrapping up 2012. I think we do have one more show, but have a merry Christmas. 
And then we will be talking to you in about two weeks. www.money-guy.com. I'm your host, Brian Preston. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. And Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.